Well, I think that's true. I think most people want their life to matter for something that is bigger than themselves, something that will last beyond their personal journey on this earth. And at the same time, as John Tyson points out in the video, we also desperately long to be known. We want to belong in relationship with others. And so we search for meaning and we search for understanding and knowledge and wisdom about life and the world that we live in because we want to have the greatest impact, the greatest influence that we, that we can in this life. And at the same time, we search for relationship and for fellowship, for a deep connection with other people because we crave connectedness. And so it stands to reason that if there truly is a God, someone who created all of this and understands all of this and is ultimately in control of all of this, if there really is a God who is truly the source of all knowledge and understanding and wisdom and power and authority, it stands to reason then that there would be a yearning hardwired into our spiritual DNA to want to be connected somehow with that source of all good things. A yearning to be in relationship and fellowship with that uh, God on a personal level. And so that begs the obvious question, how could we human beings ever expect or even hope to be in a personal relationship with a transcendent, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God, which of course brings us to the story in the person of Jesus Christ, who not only lived and walked on, on this earth as a man, but who also claimed to be God in the flesh. And from the very moment that Jesus made those claims, there have also been people right up to today who not only refuse to believe that, of course, but who come up with their own versions of the true identity of Jesus Christ, their own versions of the story about who he actually was and is. And those alternative perspectives and beliefs about him, which have produced many extra biblical writings along the way, by the way, long after uh, the Bible was penned, most of them written many centuries after the Gospels were recorded, have nonetheless precipitated various other religions and religious cults and perversions of true Christianity. And we talked about that last week. And what I've found as a pastor, and therefore someone who has a lot of conversations with people about other religions and non-Christian religious beliefs, is that because so many of these non-biblical writings are also ancient writings and centuries-old belief systems, I've found that many people give equal weight to those writings and belief systems simply because they come from ancient sources and ancient cultures. And yet, as we discussed last week, it makes far more sense if you want to learn about someone or something in history, not just to go a long way back, but to go all the way back to the original accounts that are recorded by the people who were actually there at that time because we're far more likely to find accurate information about Jesus from first-hand accounts by the people who were there with him, particularly when there are multiple other accounts by various other people who were also there that all agree about who he was and what he did. Those people who witnessed and recorded the events surrounding his life and death and resurrection are far more accurate and trustworthy sources than stories from people who weren't even born until several hundred years later. But still, there are a lot of folks who don't see any real difference between the biblical and non-biblical writings. And so it is important that, we, that we're able to clarify those differences when we're confronted with questions about why we believe 
what the Bible says and not what other ancient writings say, at least from the perspective of historical accuracy concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, by the way, most of those uh, alternative accounts that we have about Jesus and his identity were written by a single person claiming to have uh, received new revelation from God with little or no corroborating accounts by others, which is another major difference between the Bible and other religious documents. And so I just wanted to reiterate that we have this book, the Bible, 66 independent books written over a millennia and a half by 40-some different authors that all focus on the same person. Very strong corroborating evidence to the accounts in this book that they're true about Jesus. And so I just want to uh, reiterate that. There are many opinions, many perspectives and ideas out there about who Jesus was and is that are contrary to the first-hand accounts that we have in the Bible. And one of the greatest remedies, if not the greatest remedy, for the glut of false claims about the Christ that we have available to us today is the gospel according to John which is one of those first-hand accounts written by the disciple who was arguably the closest to Jesus of all disciples. Uh, It also happens to be the text for our current sermon series today of the same name. The Gospel according to John is where we find this beloved disciple, the closest human confidant to Jesus, sharing the story of Jesus from John's own perspective based on his first-hand experience walking and living with and learning from Jesus himself. And it is precisely for this reason to reveal the true identity of Jesus Christ to the world in a reliable first-hand account that John wrote the gospel to begin with. In fact, uh, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he explains that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John sets out not only to prove the true identity of Jesus as God, but he does that so that the reader will believe that his claims about Jesus are true, and through that faith, through that belief, will be able to have a real relationship with the God that we all long to be in relationship with, whether we're aware of that or not. And so last week, as we began working our way through the first chapter in a message entitled, Jesus Is, we saw John making a very convincing case as to the transcendent, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful nature of God that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And today, as we finish working through chapter 1 and what is the second half to last week's message, so this is Jesus Is, part 2. We find John not only continuing his description of Jesus as God, this time in a much more personal sense, but he also shows us Jesus' desire to connect with us on a personal level, which is extraordinarily significant because it underscores the fact that even our desire to connect with God comes from his desire to connect with us first. In fact, John says as much in one of his other letters. In 1 John 4.19, he says, We love because he first loved us. And we get to see that demonstrated here in chapter 1 of John's gospel as the story about the true life of Jesus Christ continues. And so I I hope you're ready this morning to receive his word for us. Uh, It's a challenging word, uh, but it's also full of hope for all of us in a very personal message. Let's pick up the story where we left off last week then. We'll read verses 35 and 36. 
It says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, just as a quick review, last week in the first 34 verses of this chapter, John taught us that Jesus is the Word, the ultimate source of knowledge and wisdom and understanding and power and authority. He calls him the Logos. Uh, he taught us that Jesus is preexistent. He's uncreated, eternally existent from before the beginning of creation. We learned that Jesus is God. He's the second member of the Holy Trinity, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Not simply a good man or just a religious teacher or a prophet of old or one among many gods, as some religions claim. John, who again was a witness firsthand to Jesus' life and death and resurrection, makes it very clear that Jesus is God who dwells perfectly and eternally with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We also learn that Jesus is the light. He's the one who dispels all darkness and fear and doubt. He illuminates our path and leads us out of spiritual darkness. And so today, we arrive here at verses 35 and 36, which we just read, and we find John the Baptist declaring publicly that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Okay, All throughout the Bible... There are examples of deliverance in one form or another through the blood of a lamb. All of those examples prefigure the coming of Jesus as the Lamb of God who redeems God's people from death and sin and Satan by the shedding of his own blood. We see it as early as Genesis 22 where God provides a lamb as a sacrificial substitute for Abraham's son. We see it in the Passover where God tells the Israelites uh, to sacrifice lambs without blemish and spread the blood on their doorposts so that their own children will be saved from the final coming plague on the Egyptians in Exodus 12. Uh, we see it uh, allusions to it at least in Leviticus 14.25 and Isaiah 53.7. And so the concept of the sacrificial lamb was certainly familiar at least to the Jews which paints a sobering picture of innocence and purity paying the ultimate price to save the guilty who are stained by sin. And so by the turn of one simple statement by John the Baptist, the description of Jesus transitions from one of sovereignty and transcendence to one that is intensely personal in nature. The act of one person dying for another let alone an innocent person dying for the guilty couldn't be any more personal, right? This was the moment in the story where the purpose of God becoming flesh, as John puts it in verse 14, was actually being revealed, even though that wasn't fully understood by those present at the time. Jesus, the second member of the Holy Trinity, came to this earth taking on human flesh so that he could pay the price for our guilt, a price that we could never pay because every single one of us is guilty of sin. We're all stained by sin. And yet there are people who ruminate, uh, they ponder whether or not Christianity, following Jesus Christ, is really for them. Well, I can unequivocally answer that for you today. The answer is yes. Yes, it is for you, because earlier in verse 29, John the Baptist not only declared, Behold the Lamb of God, but he added to that statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later in chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, Paul says that God desires all people 
to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3.9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So just in case you're wondering, if Christianity, if becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is for you, we can with great certainty put that question to rest this morning because the God who created the heavens and the earth, the eternal, pre-existent, all-powerful, all-knowing, absolutely sovereign God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrificial lamb so that you, sir, and you, ma'am, may be saved. Yes, it is for you. Because it is for everyone. If you read that statement by John the Baptist in the ancient Greek, it's very significant that he says the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't say the sins of the world because the usage of the Greek word hamartia in that verse referring to our sin is not simply describing individual sins here and there whenever we happen to ask for forgiveness. It's referring to the aggregate of all Sins from Adam to Revelation, the collective sin of the entire world throughout all of time. John is painting a picture for us of the greatest atlas in history, bearing the weight of all of the sins of humanity all at once in one great mass. Which means that our sins, every single sin, all the ones that we've ever committed and every one that we will ever commit have been paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And all that we need do to receive the benefit of that great act of power and sacrifice is to receive the free offer of forgiveness by grace through faith and repentance. I cannot fathom why anyone would ever consider any other alternative to accepting the free gift of salvation and instead remain in their sin and hopelessness. But many do. In fact, there are many people who not only refuse to accept Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, but they're offended by Him and that offer. I can't tell you how many people I've heard express in just the past couple of years that they're offended by our Christian faith and convictions and because they are offended, they demand that we amend our convictions and reinterpret the scriptures so that we can stop offending them. To which I give very sincerely this response. The fact that you are offended by my convictions neither invalidates my convictions or validates yours. Why? Because my foundation for truth isn't based on how I feel. It is based on the word of God, breathed out by God through those who happened to be there when John the Baptist called out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said that about Jesus, no one else. By the way, I'm not insensitive to people's feelings and I'm not callous toward their offenses, not at all. But that does not mean that I will pervert the gospel message to soothe someone's guilty conscience. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price to clear that conscience and that is by far the more loving message to share with those who refuse to believe because it is the truth. And can you see how much more personal 
this text becomes today. Let's keep reading verses 37 through 39. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now we're going to come back to this conversation between Jesus and these disciples in a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to point out that in verse 38, we see Jesus as our teacher. Okay, the disciples called him rabbi. It's the Greek word uh, rabbi. It comes from the Hebrew language. It literally means my great one. And it was commonly used by the Jewish people as a term of honor to address their teachers. I love the fact that these disciples of John the Baptist, these were men who were already with the popular guy at that moment in time, the leader who was drawing all the crowds. They could have stayed with him. But they not only recognized Jesus as the quintessential rabbi, but they walk away from what was popular to pursue that which was better, which happens to be the very first inklings, by the way, of the church, even before Acts 2, as Jesus begins to gather to his side those first disciples. And that calling to the church, the gathering of believers together, led by this great rabbi, is just as strong today as it was then. Unfortunately, so are the opportunities to instead follow more popular men and women in our religious culture. And it's not that all of those charismatic Popular leaders are bad, not at all. I read many of them and listen to many of them. It's just that we shouldn't follow those individuals and their teachings in lieu of following Christ and his word that he's given us. We shouldn't be reading those books and and taking in that information more than we are the scriptures that we've been given. And the scriptures are very clear, by the way, about the church, us, and our place in this body. Yet our culture... I fear is becoming far too focused on individualism and far too nonchalant about the church, which happens to be God's sole agent for spreading the gospel from Acts 2 on, okay? The church was never a part of God's plan for making disciples or an option for us to consider. The church is God's plan for making disciples. It is the church with its structure And layers of leadership, elders and deacons and missionaries, according to scripture in several places, including Acts chapter 6, with its requirements for leadership, which is spelled out plainly in 1 Timothy and in Titus and in Acts, with its governmental processes and leadership roles and decision making and ruling within the body, which is demonstrated in several places, including Acts 15, with its programs There were organized programs to feed and care for the poor and the orphans and the widows, which is talked about in Acts 6, as well as individual churches throughout Scripture that supported other churches financially when there was need. We see that discussed in Acts 11, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8, Romans 15. There were formal processes for discipline within the church. Jesus spells it out in Matthew chapter 18. And yes, the church in some cities met in people's homes. It also met in synagogues in other cities. In at least one instance, the church met in a school in Acts 19. We see the church meeting outside in other places in Scripture. The point is they met wherever they could to best accomplish God's purposes. My point is is this. It is the organized, structured church that was and is God's plan for reaching the world with the message of Christ. And yet there's a movement today 
which incidentally I believe is probably uh, nothing more than a desperate attempt to capitalize on what is trending in our culture right now as far as the most recent uh, prevailing attitudes toward the church anyway. And it's a movement that is being led by some very popular voices in our religious culture, some famous and well-respected pastors and church leaders who've stepped down from their traditional leadership roles and are now attempting to deconstruct the organized church and reinvent it into very informal gatherings where very little is required of anyone, including the leadership, which they claim to be the more biblical model for the church. Now, I'm not saying there's only one right way to do it, but it is intellectually dishonest to read the New Testament and then say that the church in Scripture had little to no formal structure or leadership requirements or governmental activity or programs or brick-and-mortar buildings because, in fact, there are numerous examples of all of that in the New Testament. The church was a well-organized, well-funded, well-led, thoroughly structured entity that was made up of believers who were actually the church. You understand that the church is the people, the believers. We make up the body of Christ, but there is also an organization to that. Under the ultimate leadership of Jesus Christ, the great one, our shepherd, our teacher, our rabbi. He alone is the head of the church and we are the body and he instructs us to use every tool at our disposal, including structures and buildings and programs and leaders to vigorously and fearlessly accomplish his great commission. And I'll just add here, the only measurable result that I've ever personally seen come out of churches that focus on popular voices in our culture more than the voice of God is weakness. Because the moment our chief concern becomes being popular, then the more we focus on pleasing people. And the more we focus on pleasing people becomes more important than pleasing God, we become weak and ineffective. You with me? The moment we begin concerning ourselves with keeping people happy more than we are with pleasing God, we become weak and ineffective. A.W. Tozer wrote this way. He says, the church has lost her testimony. She has no longer anything to say to the world. Her once robust shout of assurance has faded away to an apologetic whisper. She who one time went out to declare now goes out to inquire. Her dogmatic declaration has become a respectful suggestion, a word of religious advice, given with the understanding that it is, after all, only an opinion and not meant to sound bigoted. He also said, pure Christianity, instead of being shaped by its environment, actually stands in sharp opposition to it. The point here is that we should always focus our learning and our instruction and our guidance. All of that focus should always be on and from Jesus Christ. He is our rabbi. His word should come first rather than from whatever or whomever happens to be trending in our culture on any given day. In fact, Jesus teaches us uh, in the word to be counterculture. And that's what we see here as these men walk away from the very popular John the Baptist, who, by the way, happened to be very, very, very good they walked away from what was popular to follow something better, to learn from the source, our ultimate teacher. Okay, let's continue in the story. Verses 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Andrew is one of the two disciples that follows Jesus after John the Baptist heralds him as the Lamb of God. And although the other disciple is not named, it was probably John himself, the author of this book. Uh, John characteristically refrained from mentioning his own name in his own writings, uh, which is uh, one significant clue that it was probably him, the other disciple here following Jesus. Another being the detail, uh, that he was able to recall these events with such great detail as if he was there with Andrew at the time. And he not only chronicles their conversation with Jesus, uh, but he also notes what time of day it was. He says it was the 10th hour when they were on the road talking. So most likely this was John and Andrew staying with Jesus because of all of this detail we have of, of the description of these events. And in verse 41, Andrew tells his brother Simon that Jesus is the Messiah. The term Messiah is a, a transliteration of a Hebrew or an Aramaic word that means anointed one. It carries with it the same meaning as the word Christ. And of course, to the Hebrew people, the title Messiah carried with it more implications than we could ever cover in one message. But what we can say about Jesus as the Messiah is that all of the promises cumulatively for God's people were all wrapped up in and were to be satisfied by the coming of the Messiah. There are over 500 verses in the Old Testament that have direct personal messianic foretellings. And I've said it before, the entire Old Testament focuses on the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Gospels focus on the life of Jesus Christ, and the rest of the New Testament focuses on the church of Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus Christ, and it all depends upon Jesus Christ, who is the predicted Messiah, which means that without a Messiah, all that we have is dead religion, we can be morally conservative people, religiously committed people, socially responsible people. We can be many things, but without a Messiah, it all amounts to nothing in the end, which is precisely the argument that many atheists make because there is no God in their estimation. Then there is no meaning to any of this. In the end, it's all just folly. There's a, a wonderful book. You should read it. It's called Fool's Talk by Os Guinness. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart, but it is a great book. And he, he calls these arguments by atheists weapons of mass distraction because they merely attempt to distract or divert the individual from having to face the reality that there is indeed a God and indeed a great purpose and point to all of this, which all comes to fulfillment through the person of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. But because facing the reality of the existence of a true Messiah requires us to examine our need for a Messiah, to take a hard look at our own lives and choices. Many of us willfully choose a life of what he calls diversion instead. He says it this way, we live today in the grand age of diversion. And the reasons why are obvious. With our economic prosperity, our high-tech devices, and the cornucopia of entertainment pressing for our attention, we can surround ourselves with diversion from the cradle to grave. We do not focus our attention on anything for long. We do not ask what the good life is and what it requires. Happiness is a small circle, and it is no surprise that the last thing on most people's minds at any moment is the question of the meaning of life, the coming of death, and the priorities that are needed to choose wisely. 
what Socrates called the unexamined life that is not worth living, now seems to be the life more people have slipped into than ever before. The reality of Jesus as the Messiah is the reality that gives our lives meaning. And it is the promise that gives our lives hope. A hope that will far outlast anything that this temporary life has to offer us because the hope of Christ, our Messiah, is an eternal hope. It never dies, all right? We're going to keep reading now and we'll move quickly through the next two points because they also relate directly to Jesus as the Messiah. Let's read verses 43 through 49. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So Jesus continues to call his disciples. It is Nathanael who first recognizes, or at least the first to profess, that Jesus is the King of Israel, which is one of the Old Testament designations for the Messiah. So this was another way of saying that the Messiah has come. Notice that Philip adds to that, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. So again, when these men began describing Jesus with such titles as Messiah and King of Israel, the Hebrew people knew exactly what that meant. They'd spent their lives reading about him in the Holy Scriptures and watching for his return. Okay, So when they used those titles to describe Jesus Christ, they weren't describing a Savior or a king, they were describing the Savior, the Messiah, the King, who was long awaited and prophesied throughout the history of the Jewish people. These were not only very provocative claims to make about him, they were claims that these men would have never thrown around carelessly because the hopes and dreams and future for an entire nation depended upon the coming King. And so to announce to those closest to you that he was actually here, the one that they'd been waiting for their entire lives was something that you would want to be absolutely certain of because making that claim meant that people were going to walk away from their jobs and their families and their pursuits, their plans, everything to follow their king. They didn't simply bow a knee and say a prayer and then call themselves Christians. They abandoned every other pursuit in their lives to follow him because there was nothing else that even came close to being as important to them than being with the Messiah, the King of Israel. I just wonder sometimes if we feel that way today. Is following Jesus Christ honestly more important to us? than anything else in this world. And if so, then why don't we see more people abandoning other pursuits just to follow him? Of course, what that looks like is different for everyone. I can't presume to tell you what that looks like for you. Only you can answer that. But Jesus was unambiguous when he said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, we simply cannot have anything in our lives 
that comes before Jesus Christ and call ourselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. It isn't for the faint of heart, to be sure. There's a man named Dan Millman. He's actually not a believer. He's an author. He um, was a famous athlete. He wrote a very insightful statement that I think can be applied to the Christ follower. He wrote, moderation, it's mediocrity, fear, and confusion in disguise. It's the devil's dilemma. It's neither doing nor not doing. It's the wobbling compromise that makes no one happy. Moderation is for the bland, the apologetic, for the fence-sitters of the world afraid to take a stand. It's for those afraid to laugh or cry, for those afraid to live or die. Moderation is lukewarm tea, the devil's own brew. Following Jesus isn't simply about saying a prayer at the end of a church service. That may be the first step. But it's about radically devoting your entire life in the service of a king, the king. And then you accept wherever that leads you. And you pursue it with abandonment. Let's finish our story for today. Verse 50 through the end of the chapter. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So in this final portion of the chapter, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which we studied recently, where the King of glory who comes to judge the world was called the Son of Man. And Jesus used this title often to refer to himself in Scripture because in the first century, when a Jewish person heard the terms King or Christ or Messiah, they often thought of a political or military Savior, which is exactly what these disciples expected Jesus to be initially. And so he used a different messianic title to refer to himself. He called himself the Son of Man because it was free from the political and uh, nationalistic sentiment uh, that was so prevalent in that time. In fact, he calls himself the Son of Man over 80 times in the Gospels. And although it will take John, the rest of this book, to fully unpack all of the significance of that title, Son of Man, in relationship to Jesus, which we'll see as we go. Here in referencing Daniel 7, the use of Son of Man would have certainly suggested at the very least that Jesus was granted universal authority and dominion and glory by the Ancient of Days. It's a clear reference to his divinity and end-time authority without all of the political and, and militaristic trappings that often accompanied those other messianic titles of the day. So, if we take a look back over this entire chapter, we see evidence of the true identity of Jesus Christ through the ancient scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments through first-hand testimony from John the Apostle who said that Jesus is the Word, the Logos, the ultimate source of knowledge and wisdom and power, the pre-existent God and the light of life. John the Baptist tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Andrew and John both recognize Him as our teacher. Andrew tells his brother Simon that Jesus is the Messiah. Nathaniel testifies that Jesus is the King of Israel. Philip told Nathaniel that Jesus was the one prophesied about in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself testifies that he was the Son of Man, the one who was given all authority and power and dominion and glory over all of creation by God the Father. And so this first chapter of John's Gospel is really a definitive 
and foundational description of Jesus as God. But what I find to be most amazing and wonderful about this chapter is that right in the middle of all of that, as Jesus is described as this transcendent, powerful, all-knowing Messiah King that will rule over all the earth, there's this interaction between him and these two simple men, Andrew and John, that is so profoundly relevant for every one of us today that it warrants another mention before we finish the message. In verse 36, as Jesus watched, uh, walked past John the Baptist and two of his disciples, John declares, Behold the Lamb of God. At that moment, as soon as these two men were informed about the true identity of Jesus by someone that they trusted implicitly, they made a decision to follow after Jesus, which is in and of itself very significant to note because when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, those two men could have easily said, Yep, we believe that. We believe that he is the Lamb of God. And then they could have stayed there with John the Baptist as Jesus walked away. Believing in their hearts that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And then doing nothing else about it. But going on their religious business. But that's not what they did. They didn't simply believe. And then do nothing. They put feet to their faith. They said yes we believe. And because of that we're going to follow him which is an entirely different, altogether life-altering response. Profoundly different than if they just stayed where they were and said, yes, we believe you, John. Which begs the question of each of us, do we simply believe and then remain unmoved? Or are we truly following Jesus? Are our lives turned upside down and radically transformed by Jesus because we're following him? Or are we simply choosing to believe some information about his identity from someone that we trust, but largely living our lives the same as we would without that information? Because I have to be honest with you. I don't think that simply acknowledging that Jesus is God through some kind of mental ascent alone, without any corresponding action, ever transforms anyone's life. James said faith without works is dead, which has nothing to do with earning salvation, and that's not what we're talking about. It has everything to do with validating our faith, saved by grace through faith alone. And our actions validate that faith by the spiritual fruit that we produce in our lives. And the only way that we will ever produce anything in our lives for the sake of Christ is by following Christ not by simply agreeing that he is who he says that he is. Anyone can believe. Again, James said, even the demons believe and shudder. This was far more for these two men than simply acknowledging some new information as being correct. This was radical abandonment of their former lives in order to follow Jesus Christ. And what transpires as they begin to actually follow him is an exceedingly beautiful picture of Jesus' response to each one of us as we choose to follow after him. Jesus stops what he's doing. You think God himself walking down the road didn't have some place to go. He always had a point. He was never just wandering and yet he stops what he's doing and he turns around and he asks a question that he surely must have already had the answer to. Yet he asks it anyway. He says, what are you seeking? 
Then he gives them the opportunity to acknowledge for themselves exactly what it was they were searching for. You see, when Jesus asked that question, it was for their benefit, not his. I love what D.A. Carson writes about this moment in the story. He says, the Logos Messiah confronts those who make any show of beginning to follow him and demands that they articulate what they really want in life. You see, Jesus wasn't trying to better understand the reason these men were following him. He was actually pushing them to a point of resolve to make a final decision about what it was that they were choosing once and for all. By this question, Jesus was saying to them, you have to make a decision because there is no more middle ground. The days of sitting on the fence are past now and you must decide to either say that you believe and do nothing about it or leave everything behind and follow me. And their uh, response is far more insightful than a casual reading would suggest. They said, where are you staying? Which is the Greek verb meno which means to abide, to remain. In other words, they weren't simply asking the God of the universe about his temporary accommodations. They were asking him if they could abide with him. And his response gives me chills every time I read it. He said to these two simple men, asking to be accepted by Jesus, he says to them, come and you will see. He invites them to come and abide in him. That is the very same question and answer that he asks and offers to everyone who decides to follow him today. In fact, I vividly remember the moment when I made that transition in my own life from merely believing that Jesus was God to actually deciding to follow him. He asked me that question as I was praying, what are you seeking? And the moment that I said, I want to follow you wherever that leads me. He said, come on. Come. You'll see. Jesus is God. And that is not just something to believe in. It's someone to follow. Let's pray.